every person who fails to repent and believe in Christ is storing up God's wrath. Right now, you've got kindness and grace and tolerance and mercy to some degree, the common grace that God shows all His creatures. But there's coming a day that God says is the day of my wrath. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is the nature of salvation? How does it work in the lives of individuals? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 10 of a series titled, This Is Your Life. Not only is salvation a divine initiative, not only is it a sovereign act, it is a comprehensive rescue. Today, Tom will look at how God rescues us from spiritual death, from trespasses and sins, from slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. But as wonderful as all those rescues are, they're not what you most need to be rescued from. Tom will reveal what that is in today's message. Let's join him now on The Word Unleashed. When we preach the gospel, Paul says, it's as if God is seeking the lost through our message. He's appealing. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is the message he preached? Verse 21, it's the message of justification. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God seeking and saving through the gospel message today, he's still seeking sinners. He's still the one initiating. Now this is so important to get because we have a misperception about salvation. When we think about salvation, and I mean that word salvation in the sense of spiritual rescue, when we think about salvation, our minds typically picture somebody like this. This is the picture that comes in our minds. There is someone who is on the deck of a ship and in the midst of a storm, accidentally falls overboard. And this person finds himself treading water in a huge ocean in the middle of this raging storm. He really has no hope. His only hope is for God, the pilot of the ship, if you will, to throw him a life preserver. And in our perception, God does. He throws him a life preserver. And the sinner sees the life preserver hit the water a distance away and he flails and fights and claws himself to the life preserver and he locks his arm around it and then God draws him in on the rope to the boat and hauls him to safety. Folks, that is not an accurate, an accurate picture of biblical salvation. The truth is more like this. Picture the same analogy. You have a man on a ship he hates the captain of the ship. He hates the rules that have been laid down for him. And he reaches a point at which he wants nothing more than to be done with the captain. And so he jumps overboard in a rebellious moment that is part of his heart. And he fights and claws his way as far away from the ship as he can get. And then he finds himself dead. He dies in the middle of his exit. He has no life in floating hopelessly in the storm, caught at sea, already dead. He has no ability to see his rescuer. He cannot fight his way to the life preserver. 
He has no strength to lock his arms around the truth that will rescue him. Instead, he is sinking hopelessly without the slightest ability to aid in his own rescue in any way. In fact, he is completely unaware that he's even in danger. He doesn't even know he needs rescue. That is what we were like when God found us. That's why the most beautiful words in the world to you as a Christian should be those little words, but God. When we did not, when we could not initiate our own rescue, God did. Our salvation is the result of a divine initiative, but God. There's a second immense lesson in those two little words. Salvation is a sovereign act. Salvation is a sovereign act. In the first three verses, we were the ones acting. We were the ones doing. And every time we acted in those first three verses, it's as if we forged another link in the chains that bound us. But beginning in verse 4, God steps in. In fact, as I've told you before, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 are a single sentence in the Greek text. One sentence. In verses 1 through 3, there is no subject. We haven't met the subject of the sentence yet. We don't get to the subject of the sentence, the doer of the action, until we get to verse 4, and it's the word God. God is the subject of the entire sentence. God is the sole subject of the entire sentence. God, verse 5 says, made us alive. Verse 6, and raised us up and seated us with Christ. So God is the actor. He acts alone. This is what we've been seeing from this passage, that salvation, spiritual rescue, is from beginning to end an act of God. Now this is very important because there are very flawed and inadequate views of salvation that see man as somehow contributing. In fact, let me give you the four basic views of how man is spiritually rescued. The first three are wrong, flawed, but let me give them to you. Number one, man doesn't need to be rescued. The first view says, man's in no trouble. He's essentially good, and they sort of take this picture that at the end of life, we're going to stand before God, if they believe in God at all, and there God is going to weigh our good deeds and our bad deeds. And yeah, we've got some bad deeds, but overall we're good people, and our good deeds are going to outweigh our bad deeds, and so we don't need rescue. All we need is to get to the judgment, and God will see what wonderful people we are. The second flawed view says that man does need spiritual rescue, but man is solely responsible for his own rescue. This view would say, yes, I realize that I've blown it, that I've messed up royally, that I really don't deserve heaven, but... I can rescue myself from the situation in which I find myself. I'll work hard, and I'll try to be a better person, and I'll do good things, and I'll be generous with people, and, and I'll volunteer for various activities in the community. I'll do a lot of different things, some of them perhaps in the Bible. This is salvation by human works and human merit. A third flawed view says that man needs to be spiritually rescued, but, and, and man doesn't, isn't solely responsible for his rescue, but man cooperates with God 
to accomplish his rescue. This view is called synergism. It comes from two Greek words, syn, meaning S-Y-N, meaning together, and erg, which is a unit of work, means to work. So working together, synergism is working together. Neither God can accomplish salvation alone, nor can man accomplish it alone. So they have to work together. And if they work together, if God does his part and I do my part, then we meet somewhere in the middle and I'm going to be spiritually rescued. The fourth view is the biblical view. And it's that God alone can spiritually rescue man. Theologians call it monergism. Mono meaning one, erg meaning work. One working. Only one working. God alone works to effect man's spiritual rescue. That's the significance of those two little words, but God. This passage makes it clear that God's sovereign act alone accomplishes our salvation. Look at verse 5 of Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead, God made us alive. By grace, you have been saved. By God's doing, you have been saved. Same thing in verse 8. By grace, you have been saved. In fact, this passage teaches, as well as the rest of Scripture, that all human efforts at my own spiritual rescue are futile. God has to do it. Look at verse 8. It is by grace. That's God's grace to us. That's gratuitous, free, no, no cost, no expense, unearned. And it's through faith. So I gained this spiritual rescue, not by doing anything, but by simply believing in the God who does it. Verse 8 says, it is not of ourselves. It has nothing to do with something we do. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We don't rescue ourselves at all. It is what? A gift. The gift of God. Over in Titus chapter 3, Paul makes the same point. He tells Titus, listen, treat all men with respect. Show every consideration, verse 2, for all men. For we also were foolish ourselves once, disobedience, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's unbelievers. That's what we used to be like. That's what unbelievers are still like. However thick a veneer of civility they may have, this is the reality. Verse 4, but... But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He rescued us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It has nothing to do with something we've done. But he did it according to his mercy. Verse 7. We are justified or declared righteous before him by the gift of his grace. That's how we become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. Listen. God must act. God must act. He must effect our spiritual rescue. James Montgomery Boyce says, We are like swimmers drowning in a vast ocean of cold water. We are like explorers sinking in a deep bog of quicksand. We are like astronauts lost in the black hostile void of outer space. We are like prisoners awaiting execution. That's what we were like. 
But there is good news, he writes, God has intervened to rescue us through the work of His divine Son, Jesus Christ. You know, it's not a coincidence that the angel told Joseph to name the child that Mary would have, the Messiah, Jesus. You know what Jesus means? The Greek name, in Greek, it's Jesus, Jesus, very similar to Spanish. And that word is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. We pronounce it Joshua. Yeshua, Jesus' name, or Jesus in Greek, or Jesus in English, all of them mean the same thing. They all mean Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who declared himself and revealed himself on the pages of Scripture. Yahweh is salvation. He is a rescuer. He rescues people. That's why Jesus came. After he named him, you remember the angel said in Matthew 1, call his name Jesus, for he will what? Rescue his people from their sins. Jesus in John 3, 17, right after John 3, 16, that familiar verse says, God sent his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. And Jesus himself in John 12 says, I came to save. What do we mean, save? Well, primarily in the New Testament, this word group refers to personal spiritual rescue from sin and the wrath of God that it deserves. And God acted alone to accomplish that. It is a sovereign, monergistic act. Salvation is accomplished by a sovereign act of God. That brings us to a third immense lesson that these two words, but God, teach us. Not only is salvation a divine initiative, not only is it a sovereign act, but thirdly, it is a comprehensive rescue. It is a comprehensive rescue. You see, if you want to see what God rescues us from, look at those first three verses. That's what God rescues us from. He rescues us from spiritual death. He rescues us from trespasses and sins. He rescues us from slavery, slavery to the world, slavery to the devil, slavery to the flesh. As wonderful as all those things are, and we did need to be rescued from them, listen carefully. None of those is what we most need to be rescued from. Christians talk about being saved or being rescued. The question is, from what? Well, from all of those things, but the thing we most need to be rescued from comes at the end of verse 3. The wrath of God against our sins. Now, you won't hear much about this in today's world or today's church. This is not a popular topic, but this is as true of God as his love is. This is how God describes himself. I'm not making this up. The same chapter that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son ends with, in John 3, 36, the one who does not obey the Son, the wrath of God continually abides on him. I've often described it as that character from Little Abner, cartoon when I was growing up, who walked around with a cloud over his head. That's how it is with us. If we're unbelievers, everywhere we go, the wrath of God sort of follows us around waiting to unleash. It hasn't unleashed. You know, there are a lot of people who say, yeah, you know, I believe in hell, but this world is hell. Folks, this world doesn't even come close to hell. The Bible does tell us that the wrath of God will come. This isn't it. 
In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says to those who were listening to him, there is a wrath that is coming from which you better run. That's what he said. Flee from the wrath that is to come. In Romans chapter 2, you know what Paul says? This life, what you're experiencing here, is the tolerance, kindness, and patience of God. This isn't the wrath of God. This is the kindness and tolerance and patience of God. Nobody here gets what they really deserve. Not a single person in this world has ever really gotten what they deserve from God. The wrath is coming. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans 2 to say that those who fail to repent are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. There is coming a day in which God will pour out his just wrath. Not now, but then. Every sinner will stand individually before God, the Bible teaches, and will be judged justly, and then will be banished to the eternal suffering of the wrath of God. Ephesians chapter 5, here in the same book, verse 6, goes through some sins and then says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. I wish I didn't have to tell you this, folks, but here's the bottom line. Every person who fails to repent and believe in Christ is storing up God's wrath. Right now, you've got kindness and grace and tolerance and mercy to some degree. The common grace that God shows all His creatures. But there's coming a day that God says is the day of my wrath. And you better run. If you want a real picture of it, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Here's the closest the Bible gets to portraying that awful day, the day of God's wrath. Let me set this up for you. In verse 11, there's a great white throne. And him who sat on it, by the way, is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all judgment the Father has committed to the Son. This is Jesus Christ sitting on a throne from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. In other words, that's a way of saying the present heavens and earth as we know them will cease to exist. All there will be will be God in the person of Christ sitting on a throne and all of unbelieving mankind standing before him. Verse 12, I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were open. Yes, God does keep careful records. Not a single sin has ever been missed. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And everybody's there. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus said, It's a place that's never quenched and where the person never dies. Endless suffering of eternal wrath against your sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Every unbeliever lives his life today on death row, just waiting for the sentence to be finalized and carried out. That's the reality of what we need to be rescued from. That's what we need to be saved from. But God in His grace has made a way for us to escape His wrath and the punishment that we deserve. It's in Christ. 
Jesus on the cross suffered the wrath of God for everyone who will ever believe so that there's none left for you. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 5. He says, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, rescued from the wrath of God through him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the wrath that's coming. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what believers have to anticipate is not the wrath of God, but the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God. In fact, I love Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Notice he says, in the ages to come, God is going to show us the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Not wrath, but grace. Not punishment, but kindness. Those two little words, but God, mean that our salvation is at the divine initiative, that it is a sovereign act, and that it is a comprehensive rescue from God's wrath. The final lesson that we can learn from those two little words is that our salvation is a future certainty. It's a future certainty. Here's the great encouragement and comfort. The same God who began the rescue will complete it. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I love this passage. Just a few pages over in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul told the Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing. And, and in the Greek text, he uses a tense of the Greek verb that we could translate legitimately like this. I have been confident in the past, I am confident today, and I will always be confident of this. That he who began a good work in you, that's God. God who began a good work, what's the good work? Salvation in you. You is plural. He's talking to all the believers there in, in Philippi. He's saying, the God who saved you, who rescued you, who began that work in you, verse 6, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In John 10 that I read for you this morning, Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and no one shall pluck them out of my hand. You will be rescued. It is a future certainty. On that day when we stand before God, you will be shielded from the wrath of God that your sins and mine justly deserve by the one who paid that payment, who suffered that wrath. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 1.5, you are protected by the power of God through faith for a rescue that will be revealed in the last time. But I want you to turn to Jude, the last, next to last New Testament book written by the half-brother of our Lord. He did not believe in Christ and his brother as Lord and Savior until after his resurrection. But then he, he did believe, and one of the letters of the New Testament were penned by him. Notice what he writes in verse 24 of his little letter. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, fearful, worried, wondering about judgment. No. Who is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Jude says, listen, because of God, our Savior, and because of what He's done through Christ, when we stand before Him in the presence of His glory, we will not cower, we will not be ashamed. We instead will stand blameless with great joy. No wonder James Montgomery Boyce said, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul. He goes on to say, as Christians, if you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. And the rescue of our souls, where was it accomplished? At the cross. Let's bow our heads together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part 11 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.